This episode is made possible by Armoire. I love genius companies founded by women, and Armoire is one of them. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days, and then when you're ready for new clothes, you just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. To me, Armoire Armoire solves so many issues I struggle with today, the biggest one being accumulation of stuff. Let's face it, women want to feel on trend and fresh in their clothes, so we like to shop for new clothes often. But I also get overwhelmed when I have too much to choose from, which happens after years of shopping. I forget what clothes I have and I end up wearing the same thing over and over. Armoire allows you to rent high-quality designer clothing for every occasion and then send it back. Whether you're planning your outfit for a date night, packing for a conference, or in need of a gown for a black tie event, you will be the best-dressed person in the room without ever having to brave a department store fitting room with those unflattering fluorescent lights again. Trust me, your overly cramped closet and the environment will thank you. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash heel. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash heel to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to The Heal Podcast. I'm Kelly Noonan-Gores, and every week I speak to the leading doctors, healers, spiritual teachers, and scientists to find out what is truly possible when it comes to healing. I also interview real people with extraordinary healing stories. My philosophy is what's possible for one is possible for all. On today's episode of The Heal Podcast, I interview Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Kennedy is an American environmental lawyer and best-selling author. He's the chairman of the board and chief legal counsel for Children's Health Defense, counsel to Morgan & Morgan, and founder of Waterkeeper Alliance. His reputation as a resolute defender of the environment and children's health stems from a litany of successful legal actions. Mr. Kennedy was named one of Time Magazine's Heroes for the Planet for helping lead the fight to restore the Hudson River. And he also received recognition for his role in the landmark victory against Monsanto. First off, I need to give you a heads up that Mr. Kennedy has a condition called spasmodic dysphonia, which affects his vocal cords and makes him sometimes hard to understand. While the condition supposedly isn't physically painful, it does require extra effort for him to speak. I found that my ear got used to it quickly, and it becomes easier to understand him after the first few minutes, so I hope the listening experience is the same for you. In this episode, we discuss his recently released New York Times bestseller, The Real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health. This book blew my mind, broke my heart, and filled in the missing pieces of the puzzle as to why the last two years have unfolded so chaotically and traumatically and why it did not have to. I realize in these polarizing times, this episode may spark criticism and even vitriol, but I feel medical freedom, as well as transparency and accountability from the agencies that were established to protect us and the corporations that are providing the mandated pharmaceutical solutions are of paramount importance. To Robert Kennedy's critics, I would ask you to try and put your judgment aside listen to this podcast, and read the first two chapters of the book. You may come to understand why he takes the position he does. After all, under every position is a deeper set of values, and I believe we all inherently value the health of our children. This episode gives only a taste of what's covered in the book, and it may smell of conspiracy at times. That's simply how wild and deep the corruption goes. But the details and evidence which Kennedy meticulously compiles in the book, with each chapter ending in multiple pages of citations and references, moves it all well beyond theory. Mr. Kennedy and his publisher even include a QR code so that the book is always updated with the latest information, since new data is being revealed to us every day. 
And lastly, they offer anyone who claims the book is filled with misinformation to submit where they believe the book is incorrect and offer the best available support for their argument. Every argument will be heard and considered as they encourage and invite dialogue, criticism, and debate. Dialogue and debate are essential parts of interpreting law, history, and science in a democratic society. And we are witnessing an unprecedented amount of suppression and censorship of anyone challenging the mainstream narrative and response to this pandemic. This is extremely concerning to me. If this episode intrigues you, I implore you to go on and read The Real Anthony Fauci. It will rock you, yet empower you. If this episode triggers you, I gently remind you that we all have unique subconscious programming and beliefs that color the lens we look through and lead us to the people and teachings that we resonate with. In the United States, I have a right to share my viewpoint just as you have a right to share yours. It is the very first amendment in our sacred bill of rights. And remember, everyone is being motivated by their fears and a sincere desire to stay healthy and alive. Some fear SARS-CoV-2, and rightly so for their particular vulnerabilities and the loved ones they may have lost. And others fear adverse effects from an experimental product with inadequate safety testing. And yet others fear the loss of freedom due to mandates and the crumbling of democracy. Regardless of what group you belong to, the flames of our beliefs are being fanned by social media algorithms and politicized cable news, and the fire of polarization is raging. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I encourage you to watch The Social Dilemma. So if you and I can remain open and curious when talking to people who have different opinions than our own, remain compassionate towards them for their real and valid fears, only then do we have a real chance of moving forward, finding rational solutions, and creating positive, conscious change. Regardless of where you stand on these issues, I wish you all many blessings and a much-deserved break in 2022. Let's dive in. Hey, all you moms and dads out there. Did you know that most children's vitamins are basically candy in disguise, filled with five grams of sugar, weird gummy stuff, and chemicals? That's why I'm grateful to have found Haya, the pediatrician-approved, super-powered, chewable vitamin for kids. Haya is made with zero sugar and zero gummy junk, yet it tastes great and is perfect for picky eaters. Sadly, 93% of kids don't eat enough fruits and vegetables, especially the picky eaters. Haya is great because it fills the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full-body nourishment our kiddos need with a yummy taste they love. Haya is made from a blend of 12 farm-fresh fruits and veggies and supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals that help support a healthy immune system, energy levels, brain function, mood, teeth, bones, and more. My daughter Riley loves Haya because her vitamins come in a reusable glass jar with stickers that she can decorate it with. And then every month, Haya sends a no-plastic refill pouch of fresh vitamins, so they love the planet as much as we do. Haya vitamins are non-GMO, vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, and nut-free, so you can feel good about what your children are consuming. And they're manufactured right here in the USA with globally sourced ingredients selected for optimal bioavailability and absorption. We've worked at a special offer with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. Receive 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, go to HayaHealth.com heal or enter code HEAL at checkout. That's H-I-Y-A Health dot com slash heal and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. Full discount applied at checkout. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll Bennett. We're the co-hosts of the Puberty Podcast. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Oh my gosh, Robert, thank you so much for coming on the HEAL podcast and to discuss your latest, very important book, uh, The Real Dr. Fauci. <laughs> so this book is an endeavor. It's perhaps, I know you've been told this before, the most important book I've read in my lifetime. And I don't say that lightly because I've read some very life-changing books, but 
this it's it's you've put together so many pieces of the puzzle that I've been trying to decipher since March of 2020. And um, I'm just so grateful that you've done the work because it is such important work. And I, why did you do this and how did you do this in such a short period of time? Well, I actually was working on it for almost a year and a half during the first year, kind of, um, when I could, and then during the last six months with, uh, with a real intensity of 13 or 14 hours a day. And the, the reason I did it is because I saw something happening at the beginning of this pandemic, which was the ascendancy and the, kind of the, almost a deification of Tony Fauci, particularly among people in my political party, for whom he represented this kind of avuncular, steady, um, science-based public health advocate who had been around public service, uh, uh, public servant, public health servant, advising the Republicans and Democratic presidents for six administrations. And I knew better about Tony Fauci. I knew that Tony Fauci does not do public health. Tony Fauci does pharmaceutical promotion. He has transformed his agency and really all of HHS because he controls the key agencies. He controls NIAID, which is his agency, which is this vast research budget, the National Institute for Allergic Infectious Disease. He also controls the uh, the uh, the organ the agency NIH within which NIAID sits. He really, Francis Collins is ostensibly his boss, but he is the power holder in that relationship, as I show in the book. He also controls the FDA and he wields enormous influence over CDC. So that really the entire HHS superstructure is built around Tony Fauci and he has taken that superstructure, directed it away from its mission, which is public health and directed it towards becoming an incubator of pharmaceutical products and the promotion of the pharmaceutical paradigm. He does not do regulation. Those pharmaceutical companies are his partners. They are his friends. And, uh, you know, this pandemic for him was an opportunity to promote vaccination with these novel vaccines that he has been investing in with Bill Gates for 20 years and it had nothing to do with public health. It was a militarized response. It was a monetized response to a public health crisis. And we avoided the easy fixes in order to funnel Americans toward the thing that would bring maximum profits to the pharmaceutical industry. And that's why he had to kill ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and the other early treatment drugs that are devastatingly effective against coronavirus. Oh my gosh, that we just dove right in. But that that is what when I saw the unfolding of this happening, I had just spent 10 years doing my documentary and, and researching and, and knowing the power of the immune system and our innate ability and intelligence to adapt with nature uh, and viruses and pathogens of, of, of certain types. When I saw this militarized and monetized response, it was something very much didn't resonate. But I don't I don't know the whole picture, but I had known enough in my research that the pharmaceutical industry is so enmeshed with medical education. And now you talk about in the book, how um, our regulatory capture and even journal capture journal, medical journals have become almost pharmaceutical, uh, you know, marketing tools. So um, let's talk about before we get into suppressing protocols that actually work, because that's, that's the clearest signal for me that this, this is not about public health at all. Um, because my audience is very, you know, in the chronic illness world, a lot of people look to heal to heal chronic illness. Can you just give us a little overview of his track record from when he came into his role 50 years ago um, and how chronic illness has gone through the roof? And it's because of this pharmaceutical kind of selling out that he has, he has done. Can you just highlight that? Yeah, so when Tony Fauci came into office in 1968, when he began at NIAID, 
we were the healthiest population in the world. And we had the healthiest, most robust children with the longest longevity, the lowest infant mortality rates. Um, and except with a few isolated populations like blacks in the Mississippi Delta, we were a lead of the world. Today, we are at the bottom of those assessments. We do not even compete with any of the industrial nations in the world of the Western nations. We are below countries like Nicaragua and Costa Rica. We're 79th in the world by public health metrics. And, uh, and a lot of that, as I show in my book, is a directly attributable the policies that were put in place with, by Tony Fauci, not all of it is. There were many, many forces that created this health crisis. And it has to do, as you know, with food uh, and, and control of the food industry by, or control of our food production by industrial agriculture and processed food industry. It also has to do with something that Tony Fauci has directly facilitated, the control of our medical treatment in this country by the pharmaceutical industry and the dominance, the ascendancy of the pharmaceutical paradigm. Uh, we've gone, I mean, the, the best metric to look at is chronic disease because Tony Fauci is in charge of figuring out where chronic disease comes from and, and helping us to disarm those causes to eliminate the exposures. When he came into office in 1968, chronic disease rate was around 6%. By 1986, it had risen to 11.8%, so it had doubled. And then between 86 and 2006, it went up to 54%. And by chronic disease, I mean obesity in three categories. One is neurodevelopmental disease, so ADD, ADHD, speech delays, sleep disorders, uh, uh, tics, Tourette syndrome, narcolepsy, uh, ASD, and autism. Uh, allergic diseases, which suddenly began appearing also around 1989, which include peanut allergies, food allergies, dairy, you know, all these meat, meat allergies. Um, allergic rhinitis, eczema, asthma, and anaphylaxis. All of them exploded beginning around 89. And, and the autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile diabetes, if you, and lupus, Crohn's disease, Graves disease, MS, all of the, about 170 um, autoimmune diseases that began, again, exploding in 1989. Oh, if you look at particularly, I mean, one example is autism, which went from one in 10,000 people in my generation. So I never saw anybody with full-blown autism. And I still, to this day, I have never met a 67-year-old man who has full-blown autism, and I'm not talking about Asperger's, I'm not talking about your quirky uncle or, you know, somebody um, who, you know, has trouble taking social cues or looking at your eye. I'm talking about full-blown autism, non-verbal, non-toilet training, head-banging, stimming, toe-walking. You do not see those people, and I have been around intellectual disability my entire life, my family started Special Olympics. My family started Best Buddies. I worked for 200 hours. I called the retarded when I was in high school. This was part of my family's DNA. And I just simply never saw anybody like that. Nobody did. And then suddenly in 89, it exploded. Congress directed EPA to tell us, to tell Congress, what year did the autism epidemic begin? And the EPA actually came back with an honest answer because it's not captured by the pharmaceutical industry. It's captured by the oil industry and the coal industry, but it doesn't do public health. It does, you know, it does uh, environment. So the EPA scientists came back and said, there's a red line and it's 1989. That's the year the epidemic began. Well, so it's an easy thing to identify for anybody who does science and had controls all these vast databases. It's a very simple thing to identify what, we know it's a toxic exposure that's causing it. 
because genes do not cause epidemics. They may provide a vulnerability, but you need the toxic exposure. So what is a toxic exposure? It began in 1989 and affected every demographic of American from Alaska to Maine to Florida. And that affects boys at a four to one ratio as girls. It's an easy thing. There's a limited number of things. It could be glyphosate pesticides. It could be neonicotinoids. It could be uh, PFOAs, which are flame retardant that was in Teflon. And that's in all of our furniture and, and pajamas and stuff. It could be ultrasound, which became ubiquitous during that period. Um, and I've talked to a famous scientist, Irva Hertz-Pachota, who believes that. I don't, but she thinks that's a big culprit. And it could be the vaccines, because in 1989 was the change point where we began going from the, you know, the three vaccines that I had as a kid, the 72 vaccines that my children have. So, our, and it could be all of these things combined. Because our children are swimming around in a toxic soup that we've created for them now. But it's an easy thing for a scientist to who has the access to those databases to do, and even without it, to do animal studies and bench studies and clinical studies and retrospective studies and, and examine, you know, the diversity of exposures and try to, you know, make the determination what is causing these, what are the primary sources that are causing these. Tony Fauci not only does not fund those studies, but he has the power to make sure that nobody funds them. And that's the problem, is that he uses power between him, Gates, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the and Jeremy Farrar, who one runs the Welcome Trust, which is the UK version of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Those three men who coordinate all of their movements control about 63% of the biomedical research. Oh boy. But it actually they control a lot more from that because. They can that power gives them punish power to punish scientists, to ruin institutions, medical schools, you know, that every medical school in our country is dependent on Tony Fauci's funding. And if there is an associate professor at that medical school who wants to study, for example, the Kaiser Permanente HMO database, that database has the records of every one of that institute of millions of Californians' patients their vaccination records down to batch and all of their medical claims. And if you've got that kind of data in your hand, you can do a cluster analysis and you can say, okay, this exposure, this vaccination, given the first 30 days, is associated with 10 times the amount of diabetes as the kids who didn't get it. All of those analyses you can do easily. Why has nobody ever done that? And the reason for that is Tony Fauci. If, if you went and tried to do that, you're a UCLA associate professor, and you say, hey, I got this great idea to do a published paper, I would say, you know, somebody will find out because you've got to file a grant, and Tony Fauci's office is going to find out about it, and somebody from that office is likely to call the dean of your medical school and say, you better shut down this study um, and not let it happen because we don't want that kind of study being done. And, you know, Tony Fauci may be giving, I don't know what he's giving to UCLA, but it's my guess would be a minimum of about probably 300 million a year. He is the, he can dictate what science gets performed on almost any corner of the earth. And how is he, I mean, just his track record, if he was a businessman, he would have been fired 40 years ago and he's still, Yeah. I mean, you, you cover this so well in your book, but I just want to continue. Like it was his job on NIAID to see what was happening as the chronic illness is rising and, and assess, you know, what the causes or, or, or cluster of causes could be for that. And then Treat it, but he was just focused on. If you look at his record, here's the best way to understand his record and really to marvel at his capacity for survival. 
to, to, to make everybody not see the bad news. Here's the only thing you need to know. We have 4.2% of the population. Only Fauci of the global population. Tony Fauci has been managing the COVID response from the beginning. And we have between 20 and 25% of the global COVID deaths. Why is he still in office? He, it is the most cataclysmic failure of any health minister in the world. Here's another way to look at it. Here's a number everybody should remember, because this is the metric for measuring the success of the COVID response. In America, we had a death rate of 2,200 people from COVID to every million population. So 2,200, remember that number, per million. In Nigeria, which has, we have a 60% vaccination rate. In Nigeria, which has a 1% vaccination rate, they have 14 people die per million. So why are we talking about why, what is Nigeria doing right and what are we doing wrong? We have 1,500 times the number of people. They didn't have a COVID epidemic there. Nobody even noticed it. And so what did they do right? Well, here's a good idea. First of all, they have a younger population. So that is going to make them less vulnerable. So that is a, that is a differential um, that is important to understand, but it, it can't be the only account because they have a lot of old people too, and we weren't seeing deaths in the old people. Here's what Nigeria does. Nigeria has the highest malaria burden in the world. So 27% of the malaria cases on earth occur in Nigeria. Oh, virtually everybody in Nigeria takes hydroxychloroquine once a week. And that, of course, we know it is a very, very potent prophylaxis against COVID. Nigeria also has one of the largest river blindness burdens in the world. And so there's large swaths of Nigeria that also take ivermectin. And they came up with one of the best globally death to population results. Now, the death to population across Africa, where, where ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are kind of ubiquitous, is 168, 10 times what Nigeria has, 168 per million. It's still tiny compared to the United States, which I remind you is 2,200 per million. We need to answer these questions. Why is it? At the countries with the that followed Tony Fauci's protocols have the highest death rates. Gibraltar, which is the most vaccinated country in the world, has also the highest death rate, 2,900 per million. Mm. Uh, one of the most telling examples are two provinces in India. One of them, Uttar Prakash which completely obliterated and ended the virus by distributing ivermectin to any citizen who wanted. Uttar Pradesh is all, is has a population comparable to the United States, 270 million people. And the and again, a very, very low vaccination rate. Um, another province, Kerala, followed Tony Fauci's protocols exactly, and they have a death rate comparable to the United States. I think it's around 1,900 per million. So those are, you know, that's a really good natural experiment. And it, uh, and Tony Fauci's protocols fail. We're seeing also these inexplicable results between high COVID vaccination rates and high infection rates and high death rates from COVID. Uh, the state of Vermont, the most vaccinated state in our country, has the highest COVID rates. New England, which is uh, the highest vaccination rates in our country, also has the highest COVID rates. Um, the death rates in countries uh, you know, like Singapore, like the UK, like Israel, are higher than the less vaccinated countries. So you can't make any blanket statement about vaccine and vaccine safety based upon that data, but clearly it's something that needs to be talked about. 
it needs to be explained. And it's very uh, troublesome that the official reaction to those kind of data points is to suppress them and to make sure that nobody talks about them. And even more troubling is the fact that people have died that didn't have to. And this is the most compelling part in the book. Um, I mean, it's all compelling. It's it's mind-blowing and it's kept me up for three nights this week. But um, just in the in the pushing of the two, you know, reaction treatments was the, the vaccines and remdesivir. And you talk about how remdesivir was considered too toxic to give to Ebola patients and then was turned around and to treat COVID. And a lot of the COVID deaths look like they could be the exact same, you know, result of a, of a toxification from remdesivir. And once uh, doctors, and you name so many in the book that have now been kind of censored and threatened to, you know, with, with de-licensure and everything else, they found protocols that work. They'd actually saved lives. A lot of them included ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, aspirin, um, monoclonal antibodies, uh, steroids, all of these things that were working to save lives. And they suppressed these treatments, especially ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, which were saving lives and keeping people out of the hospital um, in order to get their emergency use authorization. And correct me if I'm wrong, because if there's repurposed drugs that are effective, you can't, you know, fast track a, a, a treatment. And they wanted to push the remdesivir was the treatment. And it's the exact same thing he did in the AIDS uh, crisis with AZT, uh. another toxic drug. So it's like he does this stuff over and over. And I just I, I encourage everybody to read this book. Um, if you if you can tolerate this, Dr. Tess Laurie, who's a very, you know, decorated scientist, um, she gave a speech at the Bird Conference that you say um, it could be recorded among the most important speeches in the annals of medical history. And she talks about the suppression of ivermectin. And she said, had ivermectin been employed in 2020 when medical colleagues around the world first alerted the authorities to its efficacy, millions of lives would have been saved and the pandemic with all its associated suffering and loss brought to a rapid and timely end. The story of ivermectin has highlighted that we are at a remarkable juncture in medical history. The tools that we use to heal and our connection with our patients are being systematically undermined by relentless disinformation stemming from corporate greed. The story of ivermectin shows that we as a public have misplaced our trust in the authorities and have underestimated the extent to which money and power corrupts. <sighs> That's just devastating. Let me just say a word about remdesivir because you okay. brought that up. Okay. Oh, remdesivir, as you said, ivermectin hydroxychloroquine had to be, um, it was mission critical or Tony Fauci to destroy and discredit those medications. And the reason for that, he had put these huge investments, you know, with his reputational and monetary investments, $2.2 billion just into Moderna and billions more into other mRNA vaccines. And he and his agency has patent control to those. So they own half patent rights to that technology and stand to make billions of dollars. Plus, his favorite deputies in that agency, also he assigned margin rights on the patents to them. They, those guys uh, stand to make $150,000 a year in royalties for life on top of their federal salaries because uh, based upon a technology that they developed at our expense, taxpayer expense, he had a big investment in pushing vaccines as the only solution to COVID. There's nothing else. And part of the problem was there's a, a little known federal law that's, that makes it illegal to, create, to grant an emergency use authorization to vaccines if there is an existing approved medication that's been approved for any purpose. Uh, turns out to be effective against the target disease. And it is illegal to give the emergency use authorization. So this wasn't just a competitor. It would literally lock the gate against his vaccine-only scheme. And so he had to destroy them. And so, you know, he did this campaign 
is crediting ivermectin. Ivermectin is dangerous. I show in the books how he fixed the studies and cheated on them. And he and Gates you know, rigged these studies to show that literally killing people to demonstrate you know, by giving them four or five times lethal dose. And then uh, how he then promoted and then discredited ivermectin as a horse drug, which is utterly disingenuous because most drugs that benefit human beings like antibiotics are also used in veterinary care because they work on mammals. And to say that, you know, this was a drug, ivermectin was a drug that won the Nobel Prize for its efficacy in treating human disease and given billions and billions of times with no safety signals. It's safer than aspirin or Tylenol or most over-the-counter medications. It's extraordinarily safe when given within certain dose parameters that are effective against COVID. Oh, he had to kill those. The reason he promoted remdesivir, one is its own, you know, part of that company is owned by his partner, his 20-year partner, Bill Gates. And Gilead, which will make a lot of money on this, they're selling it for, I think, uh, $3,000 a dose compared to 30 cents for ivermectin. Uh, but the key to remdesivir is that it's an IV medication, so it can only be given to hospitalized patients. Therefore, it does not compete with vaccines. Now, in 2019, he's been shepherding that for many, many years. And he had it in, Fauci had it in these, uh, I think, four-year clinical trials against Ebola in Africa. And there were four drugs in that trial, and they were doing them across many countries. And in December of 2019, so right before the COVID epidemic is, is announced, um, we see the, the safety monitoring review board, which is an independent board, steps in and pulls remdesivir out of the Ebola study as they say this drug is too deadly to give to Ebola patients. Now, Ebola patients have a 50% survival, so half the people who get Ebola die. And this drug was regarded as too dangerous to give to somebody who had a 50% chance of dying. And yet two months later, Tony Fauci took the same drug and put it into a clinical trial, which was again rigged, as I show in the book, totally rigged, totally fraudulent. Even the WHO has condemned it. It's been condemned around the world. But Tony Fauci used that trial. It doesn't, even he admits it doesn't prevent deaths. It, he tried to claim it slightly reduces hospital stays. And the WHO and, um, and Israel have subsequently come out with other studies that show, and China, it has no effect on hospitalization. So it's just a totally fraudulent drug. And the problem with it, as you point out, is it kills patients in exactly the way that COVID kills patients. It kills them through kidney failure and, it, and through pulmonary edema. Your lungs fill up with liquid. And so um, the doctors who were originally using his drug reported that that's how you die from COVID. To this day, when why did we have the, first, the worst death rates? The first year of the pandemic, we were the only country in the world using remdesivir. And the symptoms of remdesivir in the in the Ebola trial, it was killing, I think, 28 percent of the patients after a five day course. Well, they're giving everybody a five day course. We don't know whether all those patients died because they got remdesivir or that war intubation, which is, was another another deadly therapy or, or whether they died of um, of COVID. There's no way to tell. But what we do know is they actively suppress hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, two proven safe drugs in, in, in contrast to something that is toxic and killing people in, in another use. And I just want to um, also, you know, and, and, then, and then because Fauci has so much, so much power, you go on to highlight how he has power to withhold grant funding for scientists who speak up against him. So, and, and doctors, he's, he's threatening to, you know, and different agencies are threatening to um, 
take away their license if they're actually treating people successfully and saving lives, which is what they are supposed to do under the Hippocratic Oath of not causing harm and saving lives with repurposed drugs that are proven safe. And he's it's it's mind blowing to me. Um, but you you say in the book that. Um, so Dr. Rich, I believe it is, he said the best practices for defeating an infectious disease epidemic, says Yale ep epidemiologist Harvey Rich dictate that you quarantine and treat the sick, protect the most vulnerable and aggressively develop repurpose therapeutic drugs like HCQ, aspirin and ivermectin and use early treatment protocols to avoid hospitalizations. So that is how a public health response would, would respond to the, pan the pandemic. Um, yet we have this militarized, monetized response, which you highlight in your last very well in your last um, chapter that I encourage everybody to read this book again, but it's called Germ Wars. And it opened my eyes to, you know, why, what is really going on here? And, and you talk about the simulations. And I had heard like Bill, Bill and Melinda, Melinda Gates Foundation had sponsored this pandemic sim simulation and how we're going to respond. And um, a lot of people think, oh, well, all these simulations that they've run over the years was to prepare us and to protect us. But you you highlight and very well in the intelligence agencies, the CIA, the NSA, um, lobbyists, pharmaceutical representatives, all these people are involved in the simulation. And the response is always totalitarian in, and um, has nothing to do with public health. And, and it's just about lockdown control and then mass vaccination, which is what we're seeing. I, I was trying to explain that to a, a close friend of mine and they said, well, these simulations, what if they're just trying to actually prepare and protect us? So how would you answer that? Because I couldn't explain oh, it. Well, I mean, I would say this. First of all, look at the response that we have, which came from these simulations, which was exactly the inverse of everything that you would want to do if you wanted to protect public health. I mean, it, we've known for many years that one there, and this is what China did. China ended the pandemic by April. They gave her early treatment beginning with chloroquine, which is their version of hydroxychloroquine and all these other drugs, anticoagulants, antibiotics, anti-inflammatories, steroids, monocloidal antibodies, um, and a lot of Chinese herbs with kerosene and, you know, all these things that we know help. And they ended it by April of 2020. And they had a three deaths per million population, according to what they say. So that's what you want. They quarantine the sick very, very, and, you know, using very, very totalitarian tactics. They, they quarantine. If you were sick, you had symptoms. They isolated you. What did we do in this country? We did the opposite. If you were sick, Tony Fauci's protocol, you go, you lost your taste buds, you have a fever, you're coughing, you go to your doctor, what does he tell you to do? He doesn't tell you to go isolate. He doesn't send you to a hospital for treatment isolation. He sends you home to infect your family. And he says, don't call me back until your lips turn blue. And you can't breathe it. And then we'll bring you to the hospital and give you, give you two treatments that will kill you. Remdesivir and intubation. And every one of those hospitalizations is a super spreader event because now you're at home, you're, you're driving up your viral loads, you're infecting your family, you're infecting the Uber driver, the ambulance driver, people at the hospital, it is literally a formula for spreading disease and you're given no early treatments. And, you know, um, so that's what we did. If you look at the pandemic simulations, that, you know, the most famous one is event 201 because people are blown away. And in October of 2019, Bill Gates had the, you know, this incredible soothsayer that he was, was, conducting a coronavirus pandemic simulation two months before the declaration of coronavirus in New York City at the Pierre Hotel. So who were there? First of all, it's important to put this in context. We now know that coronavirus, that the Chinese knew that coronavirus had escaped from the lab by September 12, 2019. Why do we know that? Because the NSA says the hospital parking lots were full 
in Wuhan. The chatter coming out of Wuhan was all about the symptoms of coronavirus, pills, getting masks. The masks uh, were being depleted everywhere. Um, that three of the lab technicians, I, a couple weeks later, were sent to the hospital with coronavirus symptoms. Uh, and at 12 o'clock at night, Midnight on September 12th, the Chinese government military went into the Wuhan lab, confiscated all 22,000 coronavirus samples, changed the public-facing websites to erase the, the gain-of-function studies, and they put a military official in charge of the lab. So we know something happened then. Now, who is that a month later? Gates is in New York putting on this simulation. Who is his co-host? April Haynes, the deputy director of the CIA. What is she doing with the former director who is now under Biden, the top spy in our country, managing the coronavirus epidemic? Why is a spy managing a public health crisis? Why was the CIA interested in public health? They don't do public health. They do coup d'etats. And mostly against democracy, the CIA has been involved in 73 coup d'etats between 1947 and 2003. So why are they, what do they have to do with public health? Well, it turns out they have a lot to do with it. And it's not about public health. The, the other guy who was at the simulation was George Gale, who's the head of the Chinese CDC. He must have known about the escape from the lab. And by the way, the fourth simulation they do that day is about censorship. And George Gayo brings up the problem, how do we censor it when people start talking about a lab leak and saying that this coronavirus came from a lab? How do we get the social media sites to stop reporting that and the mainstream media. So this is what they're talking about when the coronavirus is already circulating and two months before the Chinese admit it. And the other people you there are pharmaceutical lobbyists, they're social media companies, they're mainstream media companies, they're, um, and the biggest pharmaceutical companies. Uh, Johnson and Johnson. And they're they're talking about responding to this coronavirus, this phony coronavirus pandemic, they don't talk about medicine. They don't talk about how to protect public health, how to quarantine the sick, how to link all of the 11 million doctors around the world in a communications grid to feed in the best protocols that they're finding things that work in Bangladesh or Zambia or Argentina or France. There's none of that kind of talk. It's all about how do you use the pandemic as a pretense for clamping down totalitarian controls globally. It is literally planning of a coup d'etat against democracy, of, a, of the controlled demolition of our Bill of Rights, of our constitutional government, and its replacement by a medical uh, plutocracy. And, you know, that is there to enrich the pharmaceutical companies and the social media titans who will be in charge of censoring dissent. It's really uh, horrific. Uh, what I show in the book is that was not a one-off event. They were doing this year after year after year after year. And beginning in 1999, where they did a, an event called Dark Winter, which was a, um, a simulated anthrax attack about six weeks before the anthrax attack on our country, which was used as a pretense for passing the Patriot Act, for invading Iraq. It later turned out that anthrax came from a U.S. military lab. So, um, and, you know, the, the series of simulations are called Operation Lockstep. And what it means is here's how we get, and they were being conducted there were hundreds of thousands of people involved. They were conducted in secret across many, many countries, Canada, Europe, Australia, the United States, all simultaneously. They were using police. They were uh, involving frontline 
workers, hospital systems, public utilities, and they were training them. Here's what you do when the pandemic comes. You don't treat public health. You don't try to keep people alive. You use it to force people to wear masks, to force them to take experimental vaccines, to lock down society, to obliterate the economy, and um, and to uh, and to transform society into and democracies into totalitarian states. Yes, for more power and greed. Again, don't underestimate greed. Um, so just to to wrap up here. <laughs> Um, because I want to, you know, now that kids are on the mandate table and, um, you know, which is devastating to me because I have a two and a half year old and I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful that she's not five yet, but, um, for parents that are going, okay, I got the vaccine. I thought it was the right thing to do to protect myself and protect the vulnerable of our society, but now it doesn't make sense. Something's not right, but uh, I mean, it must be safe, right? They approved it. It must be safe. Like I'm not people might want to label me anti-vax. I live in California. I have to vaccinate my child. I try to take precaution uh, to space them out. I try to work with doctors who can actually guide me on the priorities and the talk, you know, the least toxic options. Um, I am pro-transparency. And I believe that if, if, if people can mandate us to shoot up our kids, uh, then we should be able to, as the public, mandate them to be transparent about their ingredients, transparent about their safety trials, and guarantee their safety. So um, again, I spoke to someone because I didn't want to be fully aligned and, and biased here. Uh, someone very close to me in my family is very pro-vaccine um, and, and wanted to know, like, are, you know, because he says, look, vaccines are the closest thing to the Eastern medicine crossing over to pharmaceuticals, where it's almost homeopathic in the sense that it can actually prevent disease rather than just treat a symptom or mask a symptom. So is, you know, Robert anti-vaccine or is he, you know, what is, what is your agenda? Um, and I believe that you're pro-transparency and do you believe that there could be good vaccines, I guess? Yeah, I, I think I'm not anti-vaccine. If somebody shows me a study that shows a vaccinated population is healthier than the unvaccinated population and longer lived, I'd be, I, you know, I'd be the first one to get in line. We need to do those studies. Unfortunately, those studies are never, ever, ever done. And in fact, I said that during a meeting I had with Tony Fauci, I said there's not a single mandated vaccine that has ever been subjected to a preclinical safety trial. And he's been saying for many years, that's not true. When I've said that publicly, that's not true. And I said, show me one. And he was unable to. And, and, and he said, I'll, I'll send it to you. But of course, he never did. And then I sued the agency with Dell Bigtree and Aaron Siri. And um, we sued HHS and show, said, show us one study, placebo controlled trial that you've ever done, preclinical trial on vaccines and on any of the 72 vaccines that are now recommended, which means mandated for our children. And they came back a year later on the courthouse steps and said, yeah, we don't have any. We've never done it. They're exempt from doing it. And so, you know, I don't see how a responsible doctor can inject children with an untested product. You know, we need clinical trials because maybe the product is protecting you against chickenpox. And that may seem miraculous, but what if... That means your chance of getting shingles when you're older is now increased 20-fold. What if chickenpox infections when you're young protect you against Hodgkin's lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, atopic diseases, cardiac diseases when you get older? Do we know that? Well, there are many, many studies that indicate that people who get those infections when they're young have a much stronger immune response to all of those diseases and many others when they get older. There's a Japanese study that showed that children who get all three of the diseases, mumps, measles, and chicken pox, are much longer lived than children who do not. Um, the DTP vaccine, which is the most popular vaccine in the world and regarded as one of the safest, 
Uh, the Danish government actually studied its use in Africa. It's given by Gates to 161 million African children a year. And he says, look, these kids are no longer dying of diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. And the Danish government said, yes, but are they actually living longer? And when they went in and studied 30 years of data, what they found was that girls who got those vaccines were 10 times more likely to die in the next six months than children who did not. And they weren't dying of it. If they're attendance pertussis, they were protected against it. And they were dying of malaria, of bilharzia, of sepsis, of, um, of pulmonary disease, and particularly pneumonia and uh, common infections. And the problem is the the vaccine had given them immunity against the target disease, but it had ruined their immune systems and it had made them so they could not defend themselves against these diseases. And for 30 years, nobody noticed that it was only the vaccinated girls who were dying. The unvaccinated girls were healthy. Of that, you know, until we have those placebo controlled trials, long term trials. We'll never know the answers to those questions. And your doctor friend, you know, who believes in vaccines, it's not a science-based belief. It's a mythology because we were told the vaccines obliterated deaths from infectious diseases. And when CDC studied that issue in 2000, and that study you should show to your friend, it's called Guyer, G-U-Y-E-R. Johns Hopkins and CDC looked at the question about whether vaccines had had anything to do with this huge reduction in mortality from infectious disease after 1900. And what, um, which is one of the most significant developments in human health in history, that as the disappearance of, of death, mortality from infectious diseases. And what CDC found from studying its own mortality and morbidity data is that vaccines had essentially nothing to do with that decline. It was all an illusion. The decline happened because of nutrition and sanitation and some, to some extent, reductions in overcrowding. Uh, but it was, you know, it was um, it was the engineers and the farmers and the road builders who actually obliterated infectious disease and not the pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, that's just science. That's what the science says. Doctors are supposed to follow the science, not the myth mythology. Ask them to show you a study that supports them, you know, not. Common sense, because common sense oftentimes misleads you. Mm. Not mythology, but ask them to show you a scientific study. And I can show you many scientific studies. Another one is McKinley and McKinley that actually quantifies the impact on vaccines. It's a 1976 study, very, very prestigious. It used to be required reading in every medical school in this country. And those studies show that vaccine had nothing, virtually nothing to do with the disappearance of mortality from infectious disease. They, they stopped measles from affecting you. And did they save lives? The answer to that is almost certainly no. Well, your diligence and understanding is crystal clear. I mean, you have pages of citations and references at the end of every chapter, and I know you spent over a year fact-checking, researching, and vetting all the details with your vast team of lawyers, scientists, doctors, et cetera. So I think the last point that I want to leave listeners with is that you remind us that science is dynamic. You're a litigator and many times have seen two different expert witness scientists under oath look at the same set of data and interpret it in two totally different ways. This is why we have peer-reviewed studies, so hypotheses and findings can be discussed and challenged to make sure they stand up under the rules of science. So when Fauci makes a public declaration saying anyone who goes against me is anti-science, well, it's not only not true, but it smells of narcissism and corruption. And as you lay out in your heavily referenced book, Dr. Fauci has a decades-long history of manipulating studies, violating the rules of science and safety to push his own personal agenda and that of his friends, which unfortunately is what happens when someone is in an unchecked position of power for so long. 
power and greed are very seductive. So I think it's important to end with a reminder that because of the evident corruption and the varying degrees of capture of our public health agencies, research funding, medical journals, and medical education by the pharmaceutical industry, the science that some people might be relying on or referring to is sadly and simply not integrous or entirely true. Robert, thank you so much for your time and thank you for this incredible book. Again, I I just recommend everybody go out, pick up a copy and read it. Thank you very much, Kelly. Thank you for listening to The Heal Podcast. Be sure to tune in every Thursday for more empowering wisdom and inspiring healing stories. Oh, and make sure you hit the follow button on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss that one episode that holds the answer you've been searching for. And if you feel inspired, we would love you to rate and review us so that we have the opportunity to reach more people. And of course, you can follow us on Instagram for some behind the scenes fun and more inspiration at at Heal Documentary and at Kelly Gorris. Thank you so much and be well. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.